good morning, New Life Church. My name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here. I'm actually the life group pastor of New Life Church as a whole. So if you were thinking, how do I get in a life group? You can talk to me later. I would love to help you get that figured out. We are on the final week of our Ask series. This is a different format than our typical setup here at New Life Church. We actually asked the Facebook, we put a survey on the Facebook, and we said, what questions would you like to ask the church? And from those responses, we put together the five-week series we're, we're finishing today with five real questions. Typically, at New Life Church, we would walk through a book of the Bible. We'd pick a book here and we would walk through it and see what it has for us. But in this series, we have a question and then we run to the Bible for answers and run to the Bible for wisdom and how to answer these type of questions. So my goal this morning is to provide an answer for anyone sitting here that has the same question we're going to be looking at and to provide a model for how you can answer a similar query from your friend that would ask this type of question. So this morning, our question is, why do people who claim to be Christians but don't act like it insist on forcing their beliefs on others? Have you ever had that feeling in a conversation where you're, you're about to hear an argument, maybe you're debating or you're arguing with a friend or a foe. You know you have the answers, you know you have the defense and all the facts and all the data and there's nothing they can throw at you, everything, it's just fine, I got this covered. And when the person asks their question, you're deflated because they nail the issue. They cut right into something for which you know you have no excuse. They reveal a blind spot on an area you would rather just not talk about. That's this question. This question is not limited to the oddballs that call themselves Christians. It's not for the whack jobs and the embarrassments. All the people your mind went to in order to, to be able to say, oh yeah, those people, those people with all their hate and their anger, yeah, them. No, it's, it's us. It's, we can't just say, not, that question is not for me. It is for me. It is for you. We have to answer this question. Frankly, it's kind of deflating and I want to ask the same question. Why do people who claim to be Christians but don't act like it insist on forcing their beliefs on others? The asker of this question knows something that we forget often. Christians ought to act in a, in a way distinct from those who are not Christians. Christian literally means little Christ. And if we are little examples of the God-man, the God-man that interjected himself into broken humanity there must indeed be a way of acting that is distinct from the rest of humanity. Of course we ought to act different. Honestly, sadly, there are many examples where this question is completely legitimate and we need to simply, humbly apologize. There are many times when Christians don't act like Christ. I apologize for hypocrisy. We as a church global and Christians individually, we have been Offensive in our character has not matched the Jesus we follow. We've been hypocrites and done things we know and preach to be sin. We downplay sin and hypocrisy of leaders who we think are on our team. We've joined the mocking culture and the outrage culture of the world. Just look at our Facebook feeds. We're doing the same stuff. In addition... There are many times Christians resort to force. Force requires focusing on exertion of power. I apologize for our preoccupation with power. 
we have often had. We as a church globally and Christians individually, we've been forceful and firm rather than loving and winsome. We've cared more about political wins than gospel proclamation. We've wielded political power as a means of Christian propagation. We have in the past forced conversion under threat of death. That's some of our history. We have yelled truth without grace or truth without attempt at relationship. We've spoken with no obvious love for those with whom we disagree. Can we just sit in that for a moment? Let's not defend our poor and disparate behavior. Let's acknowledge that this question is real. That it weighs on someone's heart and mind for a reason. This question could have been asked with me in mind. And I am sure you could say the same for yourself. And as forgiven people, forgiven because of the gospel of Jesus, we need to be ready to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I think that's the the correct foot with which to start walking into this question. Apology. Humble apology. Let's continue to dig into this question, though. As I read it, there are two significant parts, two key concerns in this question. Christians who don't act like Christians, otherwise known as hypocrisy, and Christians forcing their beliefs on others. Let's look at each of them in turn. Why are there Christians who don't act like Christians? If you are a little Christ, why don't you act like Christ? Those who have the hope of Christ indeed have a distinct way of walking from the rest of the world. But we stumble when we walk in our old paths. In 1 Peter, um, Peter addresses the exiled Christians who are all over the known world and reminds them that their action ought to line up with the hope of Christ. So you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. In your Bibles, there's the Bible in front of you if you need it as well. In 1 Peter chapter 1, at the beginning of the letter, he first explains the glorious gospel, an inheritance that now we now have, and then says in verse 13, after explaining how good the gospel is, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter reminds these Christians, he says, hey, wake up, sober up, get up. You may be scattered all over the known world, but you are Christians. We walk differently. Set your mind on the grace of Jesus. We know how important Christ is for salvation, but forget that the gospel has implications for all of life, not just life after death. We forget that the implications of the gospel are not solely significant on the day we convert and then on the day we die. They are applicable to every day of our lives. We need to sober up and set our hope, our expectation, our longing on the grace of Jesus. I need that today. I need that tomorrow. And every day until I see my hope, Jesus. Every day. Remind yourself of grace. Set your hope on Jesus. Keep the good news of the gospel in front of you, always. Nothing is more transforming than keeping the good news shining into all aspects of your life. And the Holy Spirit can do 
great work on us when we keep truth in front of our faces. This book is about Jesus. Open it, hear about him, and from him, and set your hope and expectation on him. This church is about Jesus. We talk about Jesus a lot here. Show up and get connected to these people. Help each other remember our hope. It's connected to Jesus. Put yourself into a pocket of community, a little life group that is together fixing their hope on Jesus. Don't walk alone. Peter also says, be obedient children, not conformed to our passions. He says, follow your father. Follow your papa. This is how Christians walk with their daddy. And why does he need to remind us of this? Because the passions of our former ignorance, the things in which we used to walk, are always sitting there ready to distract us again. Ready to pull us back. Ready to entice us. Ready to tempt us. What is your former passion? What is that former bit of ignorance you used to lean into? What is that sin that you slip into when life is difficult and stressful and you get distracted and want to go back? The way you used to act that was ignorant? That sin that is easy to fall back into because it's so familiar? Are you the one prone to an angry outburst? Or the one who will passively scuttle a relationship? Perhaps a willingness to cheat at work is something from your former ignorance and the temptation keeps presenting itself and it's harder and harder to resist. Perhaps when emotions run high, you'd rather use pornography as a medication to numb your emotions or run to food or drink to numb your emotions. Or gossip is a way to make you feel better about yourself. Perhaps pride comes into play and you see yourself as better than everyone else. Or when you... When control is lost, worry takes over. Peter implores us to not be conformed to these passions. Do not stay in the old ruts in the road. Those previous affections, those previous leanings of the heart. In fact, he reminds us that our conduct should be holy like our dad. Something distinct, something set apart, something altogether different. If you keep falling back into your old passions, ask the community of Jesus for help. Ask your life group or someone in your life group. Ask them to walk with you and pray with you and for you. I know, I know that this is how God works out hypocrisy and sin in his church. Through interaction with him and his community, the Holy Spirit empowers us to partner with him in putting to death sin so that our life in Christ can shine through. And if that begins to sound hard, friends, let me, please remember and let me remind you, there's work in putting sin to death, but there is deep joy when sin is killed. Deep joy in killing sin. Don't hold on to that stuff. Your personal passion often deceives you. It's probably in your head right now going, he's not talking about this. Don't worry about this thing. This will keep you sane. Don't worry about it. I'm not that dangerous. It deceives you into thinking it's better to hold on to it than to completely reject it. But in reality, it is malignant and a stealer of joy. Nothing is better than having who you are more closely resemble your father. Nothing is better. One commentator described the motivation saying, 
Christians should delight, we use that word here, right? Delight in imitating God, but both because he is their father and because his moral excellence is inherently beautiful and desirable. To be like him is the best way to be. To be like God is the best way to be. If that does not stir your heart, it may be that sin has stopped your ears and dulled your vision. To be like God is the best way to be. And because of Jesus, we are being made like him, and the Spirit desires to partner with you to put sin to death. Partner with the Spirit. So why is there sometimes a disparity between people's identity and their actions? They forget what is true, and they fall into old passions. So yes, when we Christians forget about the gospel, we, like the rest of human, the human race, we stumble in our old paths. We fit back into the old rut. And that is when we don't act like Christians, when we should show examples of Christ. We also forget about the nature of the gospel. We forget about how it's put together and change our method from proclamation of news to forcing and wielding of power. So the second question, let's answer that. Why do we force our beliefs on others? Unfortunately, I didn't talk to this person directly. I don't know their definition of forcing, what they were thinking in their mind when they said forcing. But I will assume the softest option and we'll, we'll work toward more egregious options. We live in a pluralistic society, meaning many ideas and beliefs and opinions are in our society. They're, they're everywhere and everyone has a different idea. We are not populated by a people of static opinion or static belief, one belief or one opinion, nor have we ever been. Because of the diversity of thought, some find it offensive or even forceful when a person proclaims something as ultimately and finally and supremely true. As Christians, we have an overarching belief, our ultimate belief that Jesus, God and man, died to save rebel sinners is the ultimate and most important truth, not just for us personally, not just for me, not just for you, but for all of reality, every person who has ever lived, that truth is important for them. And I can't sway from that. I can't soften that. So if that belief is to be spoken, it should be spoken with grace and truth. Jesus himself proclaimed the distinct nature of salvation offered through him alone. In John 14, he's talking to his disciples and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is through Jesus that we are saved. It is through Jesus that is the way. And in him there is truth and with him there is life. And through him and only him do we get to the Father. The creator. The Trinitarian God. This is an astounding and overarching truth. This is a big truth that affects all of reality. Not just the reality of Christians, but the reality of everyone, whether they believe it or not. So if we know this truth... If I know where life is, we must proclaim it. New life is the name of our church, right? We're saying we know where life is. We know where new life can be had. We must proclaim this truth. This great cosmic front page news story of all of cosmic history. We need to proclaim it. I and we, we don't get to be obnoxious with this truth. Or rude. It's good news. One need not be rude with good news. 
but I must also not blunt it. I don't want to soften the contrast of its greatness to make it fit alongside all of the other ideas. It is something different, something altogether distinct. The one God, creator of the universe, has come into this world to save men and women who have rejected him. That's the best news. The best news. So for some, any proclamation of ultimate reality can be considered forcing. You're forcing this on me. And that is something we, as Christians, we can't help. We have the best news. We, little Christ, have the news of Christ. We must tell people the best news. In our pluralistic, relativistic world, any proclamation of something ultimate, something that applies to everyone, is often discouraged. That can sound forceful. This truth, this truth about Jesus, this truth about Christ, can smell to those who don't believe it. But a negative reaction to the gospel is not, not new. Paul uses the same type of language in 2 Corinthians chapter 2.15. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to, other, to the other a fragrance from life to life. So for some, when Christ is made known, it just stinks. But for others, it is the fragrance of life. The smell of trash or the smell of roses. This message brings an intense and opposite response. Let them stumble on the gospel. Let them stumble on Christ, on the good news, on the best news, but not on your delivery. Not on the way you proclaim it. Proclaim good news, but let your tone match the graciousness of the message. As we have already mentioned, the forcefulness of a Christian often it exceeds just the offense of an exclusive message. We are a people that know that a saving king is coming, but we often lose our aim and jump to more forceful, perhaps we think they're quicker, methods. Part of the question is, how will the kingdom come? How We have attached our hope to Jesus, who will bring a better kingdom than the one in which we now reside. How will that kingdom come about? What do we do in the meantime while we wait for the kingdom? God's plan is and has been the making of disciples through the church. Some of the last words of Jesus, some of the last words he spoke on earth, was to lay out his plan for this age, the time in which we live right now. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority and on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus basically says, I am the one in charge. Whether in heaven or earth, I'm in charge. I have the authority and here's what we are doing. We are making disciples, people who follow Jesus. And you do that by baptizing them in my name and teaching them all that I have taught you. And until this age is over and I return as king, that is the plan. The plan hasn't changed in over 2,000 years. Here's what we're doing. And that takes a lot of work and patience and prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit. Thank, thank Jesus that he gave us the Holy Spirit to help us. It takes time to teach someone. 
what Jesus said and how the gospel affects every bit of life. We, we can all attest that we're still learning that, right? We're still realizing that the gospel affects everything. It takes time for people to understand the detriment of their old passions, their old ruts in the road. It takes time to help them walk in their new life. And sometimes, rather than do that hard people work, relational work, the church often decides, let's play a different game. Force involves power. And here in our country, if I have a right, then I have power. That's the milieu of this place, the society we live in. I will exert my power to secure my rights. That's the game most people are playing. But it's it's the wrong idea. This is the wrong idea and the wrong posture. The church, rather than engaging disciple-making, engages the game of exerting power. That's, that's not how it's supposed to work. The ends we hope to accomplish seem to be good. Let's bring the kingdom here now, or at least my idea of what the kingdom might be. But that's not how the kingdom comes. That's not how the kingdom will arrive. Regardless, we take this and we run with it. A very egregious historical example are the Crusades. Armies, for a bunch of reasons, but primarily to increase the amount of Christians and decrease the amount of everybody else, they stormed their way to Jerusalem, forcing conversion by the sword. That's not how the kingdom comes. In, in fact, every time I, I'm in a, like a Christian school and their, their mascot are the Crusaders, of all, of all things, let's not, let's not talk about that. Let that not be your mascot. In the past, we have made conversion or church membership prerequisite, that's a tough word apparently, to being connected to a community or a state. We said, you want to you be in this community, you want to be in this state or this city, you've got to be a member of the church. To be a member of society was to be a forced Christian, maybe not with a sword, but with access and connection. In our country, because we have state-established rights, we're very prone to use that system to bring the kingdom. There are many smaller beliefs, opinions, as far as importance that we have pushed while neglecting the gospel. Your view on tax structure or education or state funding or health care or, or whatever policy thing is in your head right now, And we effectively say, I can bring my view of the kingdom to the here and now. I don't need to winsomely and patiently do discipleship. I can exert power. I can secure rights. Come on, guys. That's not how the kingdom comes. Sometimes we are prone to thinking, back in the past, this nation was a God-glorifying kingdom, back in the glory days, and we just need to reestablish and get back there. My friends, there were no past glory days that need to be reestablished. There will be a glory day. A glory day is coming. The kingdom is coming. The king is coming. And in the meantime, we are ambassadors of that kingdom until the king returns. Until Jesus returns. In 2 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God in Christ reconciles sinners to himself, puts them in a right relationship with him. And those who are reconciled, you and I, have the privilege and honor of joining in that reconciling work with God himself. We have been saved by Christ and joined with Christ and reconciled with Christ and now are ambassadors of Christ for that good news. The good news of what Christ is doing in the world, reconciling people to himself. God is making his appeal through us. I heard it said a couple weeks ago that the gospel found you on the way to someone else. You have been changed and reconciled by Christ. You know the gospel, the gospel is good, and now you are an ambassador to proclaim the news of the kingdom to someone else. The gospel does not terminate on you. The gospel does not stop with you. We've been given a weighty yet wonderful responsibility as ambassadors. Ambassadors of the kingdom we're waiting for. Practically, this changes the way we walk. This changes the way we live. If we are ambassadors of the kingdom where relationships have been mended and put back together, there are practical ways we ought to live here and now as ambassadors. First, ambassadors live differently. They proclaim the truth and the values of the kingdom they represent, but they do not crusade in their guest country. They show respect and care and patience. Secondly, while, while they are keenly aware of where they live, they do not forget that they are ambassadors of the kingdom. They're not citizens of where they are. They're ambassadors of the kingdom. They do not pretend to be citizens of their guest country. They do not soften their views of their sending countries. We do not dumb down what our king says so it is more palatable, but we seek to speak in a winsome tone. Third, remember that your worldview should be shaped by the gospel, not by lesser allegiances. Your identity in Christ and your ambassadorship to the kingdom is far, far, far more important than what party is denoted on your voter registration card. Far more important than your preferred tax structure. Far more important than any policy preference. Please do not forget that. Fourth, in current days it seems... It seems that we think that social media is where we can have a public voice. This is where we get to talk. If you can't use social media as a discipleship tool for the long and slow haul of teaching people who Jesus is and teaching them what he taught us, don't use it. If you're all too prone to join the outrage mob or jump into your old passions of anger and mockery and derision, or look for all the gotcha moments of those with whom you disagree so you can blast it on Facebook. Don't be on social media. It sounds like that's an old rut that's not going to be helpful for you. Fifth, engage hospitality, not hostility. Be hospitable to those that don't know the kingdom. Hospitality, as we, as we learn in Romans, makes strangers into friends and hopefully fellow ambassadors. Hostility puts more emphasis on the brokenness of someone than their shared dignity as image bearers of God. 
There are many fellow image bearers out there with with a broken relationship with God. Let's be hospitable and make them friends and share Jesus with them. Finally, engage your neighbors. Honestly, with with a question like this, when you hear it, one of the responses is to decide, I'm just never going to talk again. I'm never going to share anything again. I'm never going to put myself out there. Silence is not the answer. Love your neighbors. Be vulnerable and uncomfortable. Try to proclaim the goodness of the gospel. And when you do it forcefully, instead of winsomely, apologize. And keep being a learning ambassador. You still have the good news. Maybe you tripped. Just keep walking. Pray for your neighbors. God hears those prayers. God is a listening God and answers with powerful action. I have seen prayers for people that don't know Jesus. I've seen those prayers answered. And to throw back to a previous question we started with, that's why I believe in miracles. God interacts in this world. God steps into this world and does good things. And that's good news. Pray for your neighbors. Remember, force has to do with power. Love has to do with serving. How then shall we act after this question? May it be that no one asks this question about you. May it be that your neighbors never question your love, that they never question your allegiance, yes, that they never question that you have indeed been changed by a saving king, yes, but may they never question that you care deeply and unwaveringly for them. That they know, I may disagree with this guy or gal, but they are a changed person that loves their God and their neighbor and me. Do not resolve just to be silent, for that is to ignore the words of Jesus, your king, the one with all authority. We have to navigate the tension of being faithful but not strident, distinct though flawed, and not hypocrites, saints yet still sinners, proclaimers of ultimate truth without a belligerent posture. If your neighbors see you fall back into old passions or rut of sin, be quick to repent or apologize, knowing that we can do that without shame because Christ has dealt with our sin on the cross. And is patiently through the Holy Spirit working to put to death the sin that we still deal with. That's good news. Share that with your friend. Share that with your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being good and gracious to us. And weaving your character into us little by little. I want it faster. I'm sure there's many here sitting that want your character faster. We want to be like our Father. We want to be like Jesus. Help us to walk as your children in the way that makes you look good and gives us joy. Jesus, thank you for dying to save us from death and rising again to give us your life. Thank you that we have that message that we can proclaim. We know where life is. We long for your return as triumphant king and want to proclaim that well. Holy Spirit, thank you for putting to death our sin and help us to partner in that. Continue to kill our sin. Continue to show us where joy is. Empower us to confidently and kindly proclaim good news in a way that shows distinction and matches the method of Jesus, the servant who suffered for us. Amen.